Thanks, Matt. Good morning, everybody. Continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, this is, a, it's an amazing, amazing gospel. And so couldn't be happier about where we are through 2020. Let's get after it. So it was about 40 years ago, there was a Dutch Catholic priest, and his name was Henry Nouwen. He was originally a professor at Yale, and he wrote a book called In the Way, uh, the Way of the Heart. And in that book, he was expressing his growing concern that his society in the early 80s wasn't going to be able to survive. It's self-destructing. It was self-destructing, Nouwen said. And he pastorally was speaking to the church at that time, addressing the fact that the Christians that he saw, they were just as anxious, they were just as self-destructive as the culture surrounding them. So what Nouwen did was he drew lessons from some of the early aesthetic and some of the early monastic movements of Christian history. And he proposed that their use of solitude would be a helpful practice for modern Christians to re-engage with. This practice of solitude is something that I want to preface our sermon with today because I think Nouwen was onto something. If 40 years ago in the early 80s he thought society was self-destructing, I have no clue what to describe what's happening to us right now. And the incredible pace that we try to keep as Christians and the anxiety that we carry as Christians and the low-grade fatigue and the depression that we carry as Christians there are means, there are practices by which God engages with us and embraces us, and solitude is one of those. The reason I tied this into this passage on John the Baptist is this is the last time that we're looking at John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. You guys need to remember that the Baptist, he was who he was because he had this long season of solitude out in the desert that preceded his public ministry. Oh, that little baby's upset. So the Gospel of John... What John does, the gospel author, is he sets up John the Baptist as actually a model for how we should be doing our public ministry and bearing witness to who Jesus is. Now, what John did, the Baptist, was he purposely separated to seek God. He, he left corrupt culture as he understood it and went into the deserts. And there, out in the deserts, in the, in the quiet spaces, he developed these deep convictions it was in places of solitude that John began to have his identity kind of become a little more concrete. He began to understand who he was and what he had been designed to do. And in that place of solitude, his message became much more clear. So that when he returned from solitude back to his city, back to society, John really came as a hurricane. Hurricane force for upheaval and for change. So before we get into this, I just want to say that solitude is only one of many practices. Solitude has to be in combination with community. We don't just escape off into the deserts and ponder our navels. That's not what Jesus wants. But we do get time alone so that when we are with other people and in the midst of our society, we're drenched in God's presence. There's a both and in solitude and the need for community. And honestly, in a day where loneliness and a sense of separation for a lot of people looms large, solitude may not be the answer for you in this season. Solitude sometimes will not be helpful in the place that you're at. Rather, what you need is a pressing into deep Christian community. And for a lot of us, if, if you're an introvert like me, solitude can become nothing more than an escape. You're just trying to get free from all the pressures and all the noise and all the anxiety, and it's an escape. But that is not how God intends solitude be, to be used. 
And so in this age of frantic pacing and distraction, I am persuaded that for the church, most of us, most of us could engage with the practice of solitude and experience deep transformation, experience profound guidance from God. Real quickly, before we get into this, when I say solitude, I mean more than just quiet times in the morning. I mean literally setting aside a half day, a full day, if you can do it, three days, to disappear onto a hike, to go backpacking, to maybe stay at a monastery in the quiet. Solitude is the intentional movement into quiet and aloneness for an extended duration of time. And there is tremendous power in adopting a rhythm of retreating and returning. This is what we saw Jesus do. And it was this process of John the Baptist separating from his society and then being sent back into it that made him such a transformational and influential figure. Now, at the end of John's ministry, which is what we're looking at this morning, he didn't lose what he had learned in his times alone with God. In fact, I'm convinced that John ended his ministry with such an amazing heart because his heart had become so secure and solidified in his times of solitude. His convictions, he didn't ever compromise them all the way to the end. He did struggle. We know he struggled with doubt, and he was concerned at times. But at the very end of his life, he did not compromise. And what John did is he found this deep joy in what God had called him to do. So that's our focus for the rest of the morning. We're just going to look at four highlights from the end of John the Baptist's ministry that we should carry into our daily practices and into our world. We're to receive from heaven. We're to receive from heaven. We're to rejoice in our role. We're to embrace obscurity, something that is virtually unheard of in our society. And we're to radically trust. Let me just read those for you one more time. As we carry out our witness to God, our posture is to be one of receiving what God is doing from heaven. We rejoice in what God has given us to do specifically. We embrace our obscurity and we radically trust. So let's talk about receiving from heaven. In this exchange that Matt read for us between the Baptist and his disciples, what they're doing is they're bringing up the issue of the rising fame of Jesus. Jesus has come on the scene in the Judean culture. He's all of a sudden gaining traction. There's momentum behind his ministry. And so John's followers come to John the Baptist, and they're concerned for their teacher. They're concerned, hey, your ministry seems to be fading into the background. And what we see from the Baptist response is we see a heart that was committed to and utterly trusting in God's providential plan for his life, for his ministry. In a lot of ways, if John were here today, what he did when he entered into the deserts was he went and he sought the scriptures and the spirit apart from what the world said he should be doing. If John was here today, it's like John said, I'm going to take a season. I'm going to turn off all the business and leadership podcasts. I'm not going to have earbuds. I'm going to go out to the desert. I'm going to put away the three steps to success books that are lining the bookshelves of my society. I'm going to go get in the scriptures by myself, soak and spend time in the spirit. So this process helped John to actually partner with God and to be assured of God's plan as John was sent to accomplish his purposes. So his response to these guys as they're worried about him is, guys, don't you know? A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. These guys are coming. They're saying, John, you're going to lose the market share. Your impact is lessening. Your popularity is decreasing. And John is saying, I'm secure. 
I'm secure. I know what the business books say. I know what the leadership leadership strategies say. I know we're supposed to be building momentum and always getting bigger and always getting better and always being faster. But the reality is for every single human on this planet, you can only receive what God gives you from heaven. And so John had become secure in that. This time that he spent deeply listening to God in the Spirit had freed him from what society said was most important. And so John didn't need to keep up with anyone or compete with anyone any longer. John was actually secure and safe in his father's plan and how his father was unfolding the plan for him. And John, John didn't feel the need to control his circumstances. And what I find amazing about this man is even as his fame was decreasing, when most people would hit the panic button, John did not let that control him. And John wasn't trying to control God. John's heart, even at the end of his ministry, was to be controlled by God. He was receiving from heaven what God willed. You know, if we think through our many, many sources of anxiety and discouragement, some of those sources of discouragement and anxiety are because we are often reacting to the outward circumstances that we can't control. If we're just honest, what makes us the most nervous, the most discouraged, we are reacting to what's going on outside of us, and we have no control over it. And so then we, in turn, expend a tremendous amount of emotional and even physical energy as we try to create control of our, envi of our environment. We try to manage how people are perceiving us in every given moment. And we react to anything that threatens kind of our perceived sense of value. What John had done, though, is he had adopted this posture of receiving instead of reacting. Does that make sense? John actually carried into the world a posture of consenting to God's unfolding plan. And though John had plans in his mind, and though he had a vision that he was trying to live into, as God's plans unfolded, John's plans adjusted accordingly. Now, something really important to understand about this idea of receiving from heaven. This is not passive Buddhist detachment. And this is not fatalistic resignation. Two very dangerous places to be. Passive, what God wills will be, there's nothing I can do. Fatalistic resignation, God's in control of all things, he's the sovereign of the universe, why should I pray, why should I do anything, why should I make any attempt at anything for him, he's going to do, this is not that. When we are receiving from heaven, when we receive what is happening in the moment right in front of us, it requires an active engagement with God. And so when things aren't lining up in our circumstances the way that we think that they should be or the way that our parents think that they should be or the way that the world says that they should be, we're not reacting with panic and strife and more energy being poured into how can I control this. We're restfully receiving what is as we engage with God. And so our colleague may get the promotion that we were totally certain was ours. And we receive that in a posture of prayer and thanks. And we ask God, okay, I didn't get the promotion. Will you show me what's next? What's my next steps in the company? Or maybe a door closes for the ministry opportunity that you were just absolutely persuaded was where God had called you. And that door closes for some reason. You don't react in this resigned discouragement, giving up. We receive the plan from heaven and we look for the door that hasn't been opened yet. We have to be humble. There are a million complex factors as to why things happen the way they do, why things shake out in this world the way that they do. 
And really, we're crazy to think that we could figure out how God is piecing together this gigantic puzzle called earth and our experience. But we are never, we are never passive, and we are never resigned in our partnership with God. We are always engaged in a process of intensive prayer. We are always quick to serve. We are always interacting actively with whatever is in front of us without strife. We're receiving what's happening in front of us with a posture of trust. And that is actively obedient. And as we actively obey out of this response of prayer and trust, Jesus gets done through us what he wants to get done. And so John had learned to receive from heaven the plan that God was unfolding in his life. And because he was so settled in that plan and so secure, he actually learned how to rejoice in his role. He wasn't looking for something else to do. John had found his space and his place in the world, and it brought him the greatest joy to fulfill the ministry that God had given to him. He learned how to rejoice in his role. And because he knew his responsibility, it made him secure even when the pressures of the world around him said he should be doing something different. Remember John the Baptist? He was in line to become a temple priest, which was a big deal. If you were in the line of the Levites, he was the son of Zechariah, Luke tells us. And so he was slotted to become the next temple priest. His grandmothers would have been so proud. John, the, John my, my temple priest grandson. But John had somehow discerned a different path for his life. And he actually left what the expectations of his family and his friends and his society was. And John was actually called to be a courageous agent of reform in the very system that he was supposed to be supporting. And because of this, John knew that he was actually the forerunner to point to an entirely new system of faith in Jesus. And so this meant that John would not be fulfilling the expectations of his family and his society. But he still rejoiced because he found greater joy in fulfilling the expectations of his Father in heaven than in filling the fulfilling the expectations of his family. So the Baptist explained to his disciples that people going to Jesus, that was the plan all along. This is why he was so set and so comfortable in the diminishment of his ministry. He used this analogy of being the best man at his friend's wedding. And so when the groom arrives at the wedding, the best man is overjoyed because his buddy is about to get married and he's part of it. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, John said to his disciples as they were concerned about him. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. John took joy in his role, a diminished role around Jesus, a less than role compared to Jesus, but he found the height of joy in being the best man at the wedding saying, this is what God and his plan from the kingdom of heaven has given me to do, and I find joy in it. So even though his disciples were comparing him to Jesus, and it seemed like he was losing, John didn't need to compare himself to anybody else. He was doing what he knew he had been called to do, and that was what brought gr the greatest joy. Obviously, <laughs> I'm sure you would agree with me that we live in this culture of comparison, yeah? I mean, social media platforms, Instagram, honestly, if we're not super, super careful with the social media platforms, they just become engines of envy and, and thieves of contentment. I mean, have you ever just been on Instagram like, I hate you, I hate you. You just want to thumb down everything. Your life looks so amazing. Thumb down, thumb down. Is that just me? Am I just, am I the only one that's that disgusting? Okay. <laughs> 
John actually was okay being on Instagram and not being on Instagram. He was deeply confident in his role and in his identity. And I, I'm persuaded, you guys, that some of that confidence was fortified in solitude, where there was no Instagram. I'm, I'm persuaded that John developed this thickness of character where there was nobody else to compare himself to. Out in the deserts, that season of solitude. John out there wouldn't have had the constant stream of what others were doing or what he was missing out on. There was no hashtag FOMO out in the desert. It was just, it was just simply here's the sun and the scorpions and the hills. Hashtag JOMO, the joy of missing out for John. <laughs> He didn't have to be this keeping up with the constant stream of the new trend and whatever was influencing, whatever everybody thought was so important. John was just out there by himself in the quiet. And it was in that space where all John had to look to to understand his value and what was important was God looking at him. Does that make sense to you? It totally makes sense to me that this is what made this man who he was. Out in the solitude, John, away from the distractions, could experience how valuable he actually was apart from what he did or didn't do, how loved he was. And this meant that when he returned to society, he returned to society without a need to impress everybody. He was at peace. He was at rest. He returned to his city and his family and his friends free from envy and from competition, it goes without saying that there is always going to be a woman who's more attractive in the room. There's always going to be a student with a higher GPA and better test scores. There's always going to be a CEO that makes more money and gets written about in the business magazines. There's always going to be a neighborhood up on the hill that we can't afford to live in. There's always going to be people whose marriages look absolutely impeccable and their kids are just lined up like little ducks and they just, yes, mom, yes, dad, perfect. <laughs> There's always going to be that out there. And I'm telling you, when we begin to live this life of comparison, it really does crush the joy that God has for us in fulfilling the specific responsibilities that he's given to us. And when we begin to compete with others, we lose the joy of our unique calling. Now, community, this community here helps us understand what our calling is. We speak to one another. We encourage one another. We receive one another's gifts through each other on Sunday mornings and through the week as we scatter into our community groups. But I'm convinced that it's solitude that fortifies that identity. You take the words and the exhortations of the community and the scriptures with you into the places of solitude and into the silence where you can just be still in it and all of the wash and comparison and competition for a moment stops and you solidify in that deep, resonant identity. God has made you and me with our specific look, with our gifts, with our, with our intelligence or lack thereof, whatever you feel you have in this moment, with our particular abilities and job sets and skill sets, God has made that specifically to unfold his plan through you and those unique factors. And it's when we take time to actually deeply reflect on the fact that God put breath in us for a reason, that is what finally diminishes the hold of the world's comparison and competitive standards that, ha that he has on us. We receive from heaven and we rejoice in doing our part as God has made us to do it. 
And so even though John the Baptist, we need to be honest about the Baptist, he would have been Instagram famous for sure. He had a huge platform out there in the deserts of Judea. They were flocking to him by the thousands. But that fame, because of his security and his identity and his role, that fame was not the foundation of the man's identity. That's why at the end of his ministry, he knew that his influence and his fame was going to diminish while Jesus' fame began to ramp up. Because John had come to this place where he could embrace obscurity. John said to his disciples as they're concerned about him, this has always been the plan. I'm secure in my father's plan as I receive it from heaven. John would have times where he did not understand what his father's plan was, but he still trusted. John would have times, we know from the synoptic gospels, where he would cry out, oh, am I really in God's plan? As he was in prison, John just gives us, John the gospel author only gives us a little parentheses. But here at the very end of the man's ministry, John understood he must become greater. I must become less. I think for some of us, those types of words feel like the death of our vision and our dreams. But I think for John, they were the most liberating, true, joy-giving realities of his soul. He was okay becoming less. He had this huge platform, but he had this super humble heart. And I know that that humility was solidified. It was fortified in the desert. Because out in the desert, the only things that were impressed by John were the coyotes and the empty caves. Popularity was never John's purpose, and he knew that. Jesus was his purpose. And I would say to us that this is one of the most counterintuitive aspects of you this morning, my dear friend, my brother, my sister, for you to understand your value, one of the most counterintuitive things for you to actually experience yourself as valuable, is that Jesus of Nazareth said to actually find yourself, you're going to lose yourself first. You're going to lose yourself. And to become great, you will actually end up serving in the lowest marginalized places. And we just don't get this. Our culture and even our, our bent hearts, we're so enamored with fame that we obsess with famous people, and those famous people are famous just because they're famous for no other reason at all. My first exposure to the Kardashians was traumatic. I am not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. We were in Mazatlan on our 10-year anniversary, the first time we'd been away from all the little rats for longer than two or three days. We were just like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, like, what do we do with our lives? There's no little tiny humans tugging at us. We have 10 days in Mexico. What do we do? So our friends had recommended this coffee shop that we go to. For some reason, my wife and I were like, let's go get coffee. It's like 7 o'clock at night. We walk into this little Mexican Mazatlan coffee shop. The coffee was delicious, and it was like crack cocaine. It was so strong. We drank it at 7 o'clock at night, and we went back to the house. We were just like, whoa, this is amazing. We're having such a great time. Slowly through the evening, you know, that coffee jittery thing that begins to happen. You're like, let's lay down and go to sleep. And then you do the toss and turn thing. I could feel my wife tossing and turning through the night. Around 1 a.m., we both look at each other like, we are wired. What should we do? <laughs> so we flip on the TV and get was, guess what it was on? Chloe and Kim crying their way through life because of the agony of who they were. And it was my first exposure to the Kardashians. And as I was sitting there watching them, I'm laying there next to my wife. And, and occasionally her and I would kind of look at each other. and We'd be like, this is ridiculous. But show after show. 
hour after hour, we sat there, and once in a while, I'd be like, you know, this is contributing nothing to our lives. I know, but what's going to happen? So between the caffeine and the Kardashians for like 24 hours, we were just like, and that's one of my main memories from Mazatlan on our 10-year anniversary. (laughs) It's super weird when we think about this. Why do we do that? What, what is that? Now I've totally ruined you guys on the Kardashians. Some of you are like kind of giving me the shame look like, oh, that's me. I, I. John, John out in the desert. John out there away from TV, away from Instagram, away from it. He, he learned how to not get caught up in it so much. He out there, he could hear the applause of heaven in the man's heart. In the silence, he could hear God's applause of his son. And so fame for him was one of those fickle things that humans go after and want and need so badly. But for him, he had come to this deep place of resonance. And so his foundation wasn't fame. It was following Jesus. And though he was famous, he could completely let it go. And at the end of his life, he wasn't striving with his disciples. You know what? You're right. We better do this. We better do that. We better get that strategy in place. We're losing people. What do we do? Instead, he was receiving what was coming from heaven. He was rejoicing that his role was being fulfilled. And he was embracing obscurity as an ultimate act of true freedom and true joy, which required radical, radical trust. Trust that really moves transformative mountains in our souls of what we base our identities on. This man, John the Baptist, he really believed the words of Jesus. He really believed that a kingdom come that was greater than any kingdom of this world was his responsibility and his role to introduce. Matt, last week, brought forth this really important topic that we will develop over the years of Neighbors Church on his teaching on Nicodemus. We tend to think that the good life, the joy-filled life, when we'll finally be full and free, is when we're dead and in heaven. When we escape this place and we're finally in heaven. That's not what John believed, and that's not what Jesus taught. The moment that we turn to Jesus, we are living out present heavenly realities on earth as they are in eternity. It's the initiation The moment we turn to Jesus, the moment we open ourselves to the Spirit, there is an inauguration of the work of the kingdom of God presently, right now, in this moment, in a tiny little group of people, 2020, SDSU, right now. It's happening now. Heaven is here now, in this space, in our souls. Heaven, in the understanding of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, was this partially fulfilled, newly inaugurated reality that was not yet full and would only come to completion at the full resurrection. But we aren't to be looking forward to the day we die and finally escape off to heaven. We're living in this heavenly reality now. And what the Baptist did, what moved him to these spaces, whether it was in solitude or with his community, if he was part of the Qumran communities, the Essene communities out there in Judea, whatever he was doing, he was developing this devoted trust a trust that actually ushered in and brought him into the frontier space between heaven and earth, and he became like this pioneer breaking trail in it. Listen to the words spoken. The one who comes from above is above all. John the Baptist was persuaded of that. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. These earthly things, the Kardashians and fame and what we need to do and who we are, 
John was like, no, there's one above all of this, and I trust him. The one who comes from heaven is above all of this, John said. He testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever radically trusts, right now in this moment, heaven is breaking through you. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You know, at some point in the future, we'll probably need to do an entire sermon series on the notions of God's wrath and hell and all these big question marks within modern theological discourse and discussion. But for today, we need to recognize that we are either manifesting the kingdom of God in heaven through radical trust, or there's a literal bringing of the brokenness and the separation of God through our rejection of him. John believed that Jesus had come from heaven and was above all. And he believed that this inauguration of the kingdom was being fulfilled through him, and it was all satisfying for that, even though, even though it meant the diminishment of who he was. So when we choose to radically trust like this, heaven breaks open tomorrow in your workplace, tomorrow in your classroom, in your next conversation, in your neighborhood, when you walk in this space of radical trust that there's a king above all of this and I'm looking to him for my fullness, for the solidity of my identity, then we become these bearers of heavenly goods and heavenly reality into the present moment. You know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, two weeks from now, we're going to be talking about his process of knowing God's will. I can't wait for a couple weeks from now. But St. Ignatius of Loyola, he defines sin as our unwillingness to trust that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. <laughs> sin is our unwillingness to trust that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. So our trust and our obedience in wherever we find ourselves goes hand in hand. It's only when we radically trust that what God desires for us is actually our greatest happiness, that then we don't need to control everything. We don't need to control it. What God is bringing down from heaven, we can receive trusting that at the epicenter of his work in that moment is our greatest happiness. This means that oftentimes we do have to let go of what we said would make us the most happy. Very, very difficult. It's why Jesus said we have to carry our own crosses. We have to deny ourselves and lose ourselves to find ourselves because underneath that is a deeper happiness in Christ. We need to discern what God is bringing down from above and how he is unfolding heaven here on earth as we pray and partner with him. But we find our greatest joy in living in that renewed sense of the Father's delighted gaze upon us. It's as we radically trust Jesus that we finally begin to discern our actual role and we live in that joyful obedience. We don't need to do something else. We don't need to chase after what isn't. We find what we're to do in the moment and we do it with God's glory in our mind and joy in our heart. Even if that doesn't line up with what society says we should be doing, what society says is successful, what our family pressures are, what our friends' pressures are, we stay the course. So here's how I want to wrap this up. Um, smaller group today, lots of the college kids are off watching, bap there's a baptism of one of their kids, and so we have a smaller group today, and this is, I think this would work really well for us today. And families in here today, most of us in here are working careers today, 
wants to have a little discussion about this. It's Lent season right now. For those of you that aren't familiar with the church calendar, we'll press this a lot more in 2021. Lent is the season that approaches Easter and the celebration of the resurrection. And for centuries, the church has taken Lent 40 days as a season to fast, to become introspective, to become quiet. Lent is a season of uh, what the old ones called contrition. It's a season of seeking the conviction of the Spirit around particular sin or where God wants to renew and make new and bring new light and new life into what maybe has been laying dead or dormant. And so Lent is a season of quietness. Lent is a season of stillness. Lent is a season of repentance. And I think it would be really beneficial for us as we approach Easter to make a, to make a plan to engage with Lent actively and do that through this practice of solitude. Make a plan somehow at some point before Easter to separate from all the distractions and to focus and discern on God's role for you in society. Now, John the Baptist, we don't know how long he was out in the deserts. The desert fathers and the desert mothers of the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, those guys went up to the deserts and they just stayed out there. They never came back. The, the monks, the monastic movements, Benedict and Loyola and Ignatius and uh, Francis, they developed these kind of hot spots of solitude, the monasteries, and we still have them all throughout the world. But those monasteries were designed to go into to, for these intentional seasons of silence and solitude to be sent back into society. For us as modern-day San Diegans, I can never pronounce it right. What is it? The Aragoba Desert? What is it? Can somebody help me? Bonzo Gorego? What? It's not Bonzo Gorego? Anzo Gorego? Okay. And, okay. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a desert. There's a desert. You could... I totally lost everybody. Come back. I'm sorry. There is a desert just east of us. There's Julian, and there's these little kind of, they call them mountains out there. They're not mountains, but uh, they, there's space out there where you can't get cell phone service. And, and I would encourage every one of you, before Easter, make a plan. If you can fit it into your schedule, prioritize making a plan to do a half day, a full day. If you can fit it in, there's a monastery right in Oceanside that I go to that's incredible. Go for a day. Go for two days. Go for three days. Don't take your phone. Take a Bible and some water and some food and go into solitude and just allow yourself to experience who you are apart from everything that's around you. For some, this causes great anxiety. For some, it's just completely overwhelming and, and maybe you could have a spiritual director. You could even talk with me and I would walk you through what a solitude, a silent solitude retreat could look like even for 24 hours. The point being, if we don't plan for this, we're just going to kind of bump our way through the frenetic pace of traffic in San Diego and be distracted by whatever we're going to be distracted by. All the while, the plan from heaven is just drenching you, and you don't even notice it. I don't even notice it. But when we go out into those places, when we make a plan to go into those places, then we find a deep resonance, and something transforms in us, and we're set a little bit more free. So here's what I want to do. I want to just break us up into, before we take communion this morning, just break us up into groups of two or three, and I have a list of questions that we can walk through here. You don't have to answer all of these. We're only going to take about five minutes, ten minutes, 
But you discuss amongst yourselves, just as a community of people, is now a season for you to pursue solitude or community? Is now a season to pursue solitude or community for you? Meaning right now, where do you feel like the Spirit wants to fill you up? And this is tricky. This is tricky. If you're introverted, you're like, definitely solitude. And that's just escapism. You actually need to press into community. That's me, nine times out of ten. But maybe you're the one that's been like, this community doesn't meet my needs. That community doesn't meet, and they failed me there, and that person hurt me there. Maybe it's a time to just go into the space of being alone with God and listening to what he has for you. How confident are you in your identity and calling right now? This is a big question, looming in my life, personally. So I'm asking, I'm seeking, God, what is the details of this calling in my life right now? What would strengthen that confidence? Talk about that a little bit. What plans will you make to move forward in your calling today? Let's make it concrete. Let's not leave Sunday morning like, oh, that was an interesting message and funny joke about the Kardashians, and, and then we go on with our life. Let's, let's get notebooks out and let's write. Let's write something here. And then during Lent, what could you separate from for an extended season to focus on God more intensely? Um, honestly, uh, technology fasts, those types of things for our society are so so helpful, so helpful. And so you don't have to answer all of these. I just wanted to give you guys some talking points. Let's spend five minutes, five to seven minutes, in groups of two, three, or four, just discussing some of these questions, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three, break up, go, talk. <laughs> 